Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Today's reading is from a wonderful children's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it tells the story of the resurrection from Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. It's called God's Wonderful Surprise. Jesus' friends were sad. They would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer, the king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. But whoever said anything about the end? Just before sunrise, on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven. When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with fright. The angel rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it, and waited. At the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses, little tears everywhere. The friends walked quietly along the hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb. And immediately they noticed something odd. It was wide open. They peered through the opening into the tomb. But wait, Jesus' body was gone. And something else, a shining man was there with clothes made from lightning. Don't be scared, the angel said. But they couldn't help it. They screamed anyway. The angel asked them, what are you doing here? This is a tomb and tombs are for dead people. The women couldn't speak. Jesus isn't dead anymore. He said he's alive again. And their hearts leapt. And then the angel laughed with such gladness that they felt for a moment as if they'd awakened from a nightmare. The other women rushed home, but Mary stayed behind. How could it be true? Jesus was definitely dead. How could he be alive? Just then, Mary heard someone else in the garden. Perhaps it was the gardener, she thought. He'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was, and he had found her. Mary. There was only one person who said her name like that. She could feel her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see and thought she was dreaming. But she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing. Jesus! Mary fell to the ground. Sudden tears filled her eyes and great sobs shook her whole body. And all she wanted in that moment was to cling to Jesus and never let go. You'll be able to hold me later, Mary, Jesus said gently, and always be close to me. But now, go and tell the others that I'm alive. Mary ran all the way to the city. She had never run so fast or so far in all her life. She felt she could run forever. 
She didn't even feel like her feet touched the ground. The sun seemed to be dancing and gleaming and bouncing across the sky, racing with her and shining brighter than she could ever remember in the clear, fresh air. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? She couldn't wait to tell Jesus's friends, they won't believe it, she laughed. And she was right, of course. I just want to take a moment before I begin to say, hi, everybody. It's so good to see you all here. Hello to those who are joining online. I don't mean to dismiss you, but this is awesome. This is great to have so many of you. And I really have so much enjoyed the last few weeks, especially. It just feels like more and more people are coming back to church. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to reconnect. I mean, I, I've known that the church is there because we you know, receive notes and letters and see you online and, and receive donations, but it's just so wonderful to see it in person and see it in flesh, all of us together as, as the body of Christ. And so uh, thanks for being here for Easter. Um, a, a few, uh, and, and I want to say thanks. Uh, it's good to see all the kids in here. Can I, can I hear from the kids real quickly? If you're here, say, say, say hey, shout or something so we all know you're here, all of us adults. Awesome. Awesome. Now, parents... Give your kids a big hug right now. And remember, if they get squirmy during the sermon, that's okay. We're all here together as one family uh, learning about Jesus, and that's a really good thing. So, okay. So I remember the first time I met Brad Stevens. And yes, I am name dropping on Easter morning. Just get over it. I was, uh, it was January of 2010. And Jamelin and I had just been appointed to St. Luke's United Methodist Church where Brad and his family attended church. And at St. Luke's, the whole back wall of the sanctuary is this big glass wall. And there are benches on the other side. So you can sit on those benches and be able to see what's going on inside. And so I was sitting on one of those benches with Margaret and Nathan, who were like one and three at the time. And, and Jamelin was up front leading worship. And I wanted them to see their mommy up front leading in the church. And so I was sitting there and Brad was sitting on the bench next to me, also with his children who were like two and four, like I think they were just one year older than our kids. And this is kind of my ignorance at that time about Butler basketball. And plus the fact that Brad was not a household name, but I didn't know who he was. Like Brad introduced himself to me. Hi, I'm Brad Stevens, you know? And so I was like, oh, oh, yeah. And at that point it clicked. I was like, oh, you're the Butler basketball coach. And so we started talking for a little bit. Our kids were the same age, trying to keep them from being too squirmy. And then um, we said, okay, let's get together for coffee sometime. So we did, and we found all these points of connection, not just that, you know, we were parenting at roughly the same stage and age of kids, but also we had a love of some of the same books, John Ortberg books in particular, and also a love of small colleges. I went to Davidson College, which is a real small school, and he knew the basketball coach at Davidson, Coach McKillop, and so we kind of hit it off. And anyways, fast forward a few months. March that year was when the Butler made its magical run all the way to the final four. You guys remember that, right? 
You probably remember it because it was right here in Indy, the final four was that year, you know. So the whole town was ablaze with Butler fever. What you may not remember is the final four that year was Easter weekend. And so on Saturday night, it's maybe six o'clock or so in the evening, a couple hours before Butler was going to tip off against Michigan State, Brad texted me and he said, hey, I don't know if we're going to win, but if we do win, my kids won't be able to leave the hotel tomorrow morning to go back to their churches and have Easter services. We're going to be on media lockdown. So will you come down and, and do the service, you know, Easter service for my team? I said, of course, I would be delighted to. Now, what Brad did not realize at the time is even though I went to Davidson College, Jamal and I went to Duke for seminary. And he didn't know that. And so by the time I arrived Sunday afternoon, about two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, over those 20 hours or so, uh, Tracy, his wife, had told him, what are you doing? Dave and Jamelin went to Duke. You're having a Duke pastor come and talk to us before we play Duke, right? So Brad met me at the, at the door to the hotel, and he said, uh, Dave, you never told me you were from Duke. You know? <laughs> I said, I wasn't trying to hide it. It was just, we talked about David. So anyway, so he said, he said, I, you can go ahead and do the service, but I'm watching you. If you say Goliath beats David, you are out of here, you know? And I said, okay. So I had this opportunity, this rare opportunity to sit with these kids who, you know, names that you probably remember, right? Ronald Norad, Shelvin Mack, Matt Howard, Gordon Hayward, I had the opportunity to be with them on the eve of the biggest game of their lives and to talk to them about Easter. So what did I talk to them about? Well, I, I talked to them about defining moments. I, I said, you know, in, in a basketball game, there are defining moments, right? Like, like it's 40 minutes of play, but there's usually, it comes down to just a handful of plays, a, a defensive stop, a clutch shot. You know, there's a handful of plays that tell the story of the game. That's why when the, you know, the NCAA tournament is over, my favorite part of the whole thing is to stay up and watch one shining moment. You guys ever watch it? Because it's about those defining moments from the whole tournament. That's what tells the story. And so I talked to him about that, and I said, you know, and the same is true, what's true of basketball, the same is true of life, that in life, there are defining moments. In relationships, defining moments. In your career, there will be defining moments. In your faith, there are defining moments. And what we do in defining moments matters. It matters more than what we do in all the other moments of our lives, because there are defining moments that shape and change everything, that tell the story of our lives. And so once they kind of, and that, that wasn't a hard sell to get these, got, these kids locked into that, because they knew they were living in that moment, a defining moment of their lives. I said, but let's go to the Easter story, the story of Holy Week, because that is a week that is full of defining moments. From the moment that Jesus came into Jerusalem, like the whole city was electrified, like, like just like Butler was, you know, Indy was when Butler made its run to the final four. There was just this buzz of excitement in the air. And if you look at that week, there are so many defining moments. The sad thing is though, when you look at all those defining moments, in most cases, you're reading about people who failed to meet the defining moment. Let's start with Simon Peter, right? 
the, you know, the, one of the first disciples, the fiery fisher of men. I like the way that slide puts it. I mean, Simon Peter already had some defining moments in his relationship with Jesus. The first time he met Jesus, he was fishing by the shores of Galilee. Jesus said, leave your nets. Come, I'll teach you to be a fisher of men. And immediately he left. And that kind of sets the stage for who Simon Peter is. He's bold and he's brash. When he sees Jesus walking on the water, he says, Lord, if it's you, let me come and walk on the waves to you. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one who boldly declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But, but, but he's kind of a, a boom or bust kind of character. As many times as he gets it right, he also gets it wrong. He walks on the water, but what does he do once he's out there? He gets scared and he begins to sink. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And then no sooner is he declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, than the very next sentence, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Like, like he gets it right and he gets it wrong, but always in big, epic ways. So at the upper room, when Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to be arrested tonight and all of you are going to leave me. Simon Peter says, not me. I am with you, Lord, all the way. And Jesus says, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And so Peter follows at a distance after Jesus is arrested. And a woman approaches him and says, weren't you with him? And he says, no, no, not me. And then another person says, no, 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 I, I think I saw you. You were with them. No, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. And when a third time someone asks him if he knew Jesus, he says, I tell you, I do not know the man. And at that moment, the cock crows. It's a defining moment. And Peter failed. He missed it. He's not alone among the disciples. I mean, all of them fled, but I don't think any disciple fell farther or harder from grace than Judas Iscariot, did he? I mean, Judas was one of the 12, one of the original 12 that Jesus called. He walked with Jesus for three years, saw his miracles, heard his teaching. He was in the inner circle. But when they got to Jerusalem, Judas was disillusioned by everything that happened, by Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah he wanted him to be. So he went to the chief priests and elders and he made a deal for 30 shekels of silver. He betrayed his master and his Lord. And so that night after the upper room, he led the Roman soldiers into the garden of Gethsemane. And how did he do it? He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Defining moment. And for Judas, it crushed his soul so much that he went and hung himself. He couldn't live with the remorse and the pain of what he'd done. Speaking of the high priest and the elders, well, it was a defining moment for them too, right? Like they dedicated their lives to serving God and leading the people. And they probably had a lot of highlights over that career. But what are they known by? What are they defined by? By how they treated Jesus. And the same is true of Pontius Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate... Whatever he may have done in his career as governor of that area, we don't know any of that. What do we know? That he, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And what's funny about Pontius Pilate is he, he had no political stake in this. Like he didn't even think Jesus was guilty. He is the quintessential, quintessential example of a leader who could not stand up to the pressures of the mob. When they kept crying, crucify, 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 what did he do? He washed his hands, even as he gave the order for Jesus to be killed. That was the defining moment 
of his career and his life. My point is this, again and again and again and again, whenever the defining moments came up for the leaders, for the disciples, even for the crowds of people, when they had the opportunity to choose Jesus instead of Barabbas, what did they call out? Barabbas! What about Jesus? Crucify him again and again and again. We humans failed to meet the defining moments of the story. The one exception to that, to that trend, the one notable exception is Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who when the defining moment came, he rose to meet it with courage, strength, dignity, and grace. And the reason why is because he had been preparing for that moment his whole life from his baptism to the wilderness and the temptations, to his entry into Jerusalem, to the upper room, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, all along the way, he had been preparing himself, setting his face towards the cross because he knew this was the purpose. This was the telos, the end towards which his life was pointed. This is what he had to do. He knew it in order to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah who said, surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus knew that was, the, that was the purpose for which he'd been sent. And so when the defining moment came, he prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but in the end said, not my will, but your will be done. And there upon the cross, even as he was being tortured and mocked, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do defining moment of who Jesus was, such that the centurion, the Roman centurion who stood at his feet, watched the entire crucifixion play out, at the end could only declare, surely this man was the son of God. That's who Jesus was. But today, that's not the defining moment I want us to think about, the cross. As powerful as that defining moment is in human history, it's not the end of the story because that day was followed with another defining moment, the day of Easter. And that defining moment redefined everything. You see, the cross was not a symbol of God's love in that day and age. It was a symbol of Roman power. It was a symbol of of punishment, a warning to every would-be Messiah. This is what happens if you try to stand up to Rome. This is what happens if you follow people who are claiming to be king, that there is a king other than Caesar. That's what the symbol of the cross stood for. And so when Jesus was killed on the cross, that was the verdict of Rome. This is a wannabe Messiah. But there was another moment that came three days later, that redefine who Jesus is. It's because of the empty tomb 
that we know Jesus was not a would-be Messiah, but that he is Messiah and Lord. Because of the empty tomb, we know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, firstborn from the dead, that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the way and the truth, the word made flesh, the light that the darkness could never extinguish. That's who Jesus is, and he is defined not by the cross, but by the empty tomb. And here's what I want you to see. See, the cross did not define Jesus, but instead Jesus redefined the cross. He took what was a symbol of Roman power and persecution and transformed it into a picture of God's unconditional, never-stopping, creation-redeeming love. Jesus redefines everything. The resurrection redefines everything. And just as you can look through the story of Holy Week and see lots of people who failed their defining moments, you can also look through the story and find example after example of people who were redefined by Jesus. Start with the thief on the cross. To either side of Jesus, when he was crucified, there were thieves, murderers, men who were condemned for crimes. And, and, and these thieves and murderers, no doubt they had known nothing but violence, murder, insurrection, and anger. I mean, they were violent men. And this was their judgment upon them, the summary judgment that their lives were better off gone. And one of them embraced that nihilism, began to mock Jesus, even as he's on the cross saying, you know, if you're the son of God, if you're who you say you are, save yourself. And the other one spoke up and said, He's done nothing wrong. We deserve this, but not him. And then he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And instantly, a life is redefined. He goes from condemned criminal to a welcome citizen in the kingdom of God. Take Mary Magdalene that was in the story that Scott read just a moment ago. Mary Magdalene, on the day of the resurrection, when she went into that garden, she was the chief mourner. I mean, she, above all others, had her heart broken, and she was deep in grief and mourning. Now, history has tried to define Mary Magdalene in all kinds of ways. We have ascribed to her that you know, illicit behaviors of sex and so forth. Uh, uh, but that, that's not who Mary Magdalene is if you look through scripture. All we know about her is that Jesus at one point cast evil spirits out of her. And she was so thankful and grateful for the transformation in her life that she became one of Jesus's biggest supporters. She's mentioned more times in the New Testament, 12 times, than most of the other apostles. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus. She devoted her life to Jesus. And when Jesus died, it was like the world came to an end for her. She went into the, to the garden that morning to grieve. She found the tomb empty. And instead of being filled with joy, instead she's filled with panic. Like she's frantic, running from person to person, asking everyone she can, where have they taken my Lord? Have you seen where they took him? Until finally she asked a man that she thinks is the gardener. 
Where have they taken my Lord? And he speaks her name, Mary. And with that single word, her eyes are opened and she sees it's Jesus. And her sorrow is displaced by joy. She goes from being chief mourner to being the very first evangelist of the gospel, redefined by grace and new life. Later that night, Jesus appears to all of the disciples in the upper room, except there's someone who's missing. You guys know this story? Who's missing? Thomas. Except we don't call him Thomas, do we? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. We define him by his failures, right? That he didn't believe that he wasn't there. I love this little cartoon. I don't know if you can read it. It's kind of hard to read, but it says, you know, Thomas saying, all I'm saying is we don't call Peter denying Peter or Mark ran away naked Mark. Why should I be saddled with doubting Thomas? And the other just, I was like, just move on, you know, but, but you know, why do we, we define him by his failures that he didn't believe. But Jesus didn't define him that way. Instead, Jesus appeared a second time when Thomas was with the disciples. And when he saw Thomas, he invited him. He said, put your fingers in the holes of my hands. Place your hand in my side because I want you to believe. And you know what happened with Thomas after that? Do you know the rest of the story? He kind of disappears from the pages of the Bible. But... He was the first apostle to take the good news of Jesus Christ to India. He planted the church there. He was eventually martyred for his faith. I've traveled to India. I've worshiped in churches there. And they do not call Thomas Doubting Thomas. They call him Father and Saint. He was redefined from doubter to martyr by Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have Peter the guy we started with this whole time ago. Peter denying Jesus three times. And why don't we call him denying Peter now? Well, that's because he was redefined by Jesus. Sometime after Jesus' appearance to the disciples and to Thomas, sometime after that, Peter is, is back at his boats on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's not really sure what to do with his life, so he goes back to what he knows. And then Jesus appears on the shores one morning. And Peter is so elated and excited to see him. It's like a, it's like a Forrest Gump seeing Lieutenant Dan moment. Like he just jumps out of the boat and like swims to shore. He's so excited to see Jesus. But his, his joy is, is kind of cut short because then when he sees Jesus, Jesus asks him a question. He says, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And feed my sheep, Jesus says. He asks him a second time, then a third time, a perfect mirror of the three times that Peter denied him. But Jesus isn't rubbing salt in the wound. He's giving Peter the opportunity to atone, to redeem, to profess his love. And every time Peter says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus gives him a charge. Feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. You see, Peter is not discarded. He's not laid aside as denying Peter. He is still the rock on whom Jesus will build his church. So if you put it all together, it looks like this. On the top line, you got the people that I started off with, who each were defined by their failures, defined by betrayal, defined by ambition and fear. 
And on the bottom, you have people who allowed their lives to be redefined by Jesus. And the people on the bottom, they knew their own share of failure and loss and hurt and pain and confusion and doubt. I mean, they knew all those things, but they allowed their hearts to be redefined by hope and by joy, by faith and by grace. Of course, you'll point out perhaps that Peter appears on both lines. And that's to make my point that the difference between the people on the top and the people on the bottom is what they did with Jesus Christ. The people on the bottom allow the resurrection and the love of Jesus to redefine who they were, for it to be the one thing that mattered, to allow it to displace all the other failures and burdens they carried. You see, this is the good news of Easter. This is what we proclaim, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ redefined all of human history. It is the fulcrum on which human history turns, Because now we know, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin and death no longer get the last word on creation. The final definitive word is Jesus, is resurrection, is life, is love. That is God's definitive word. And there is nothing, Paul declares, that could ever happen in all creation. No event, no word that could ever unspeak God's word of life. Easter is the defining moment of human history. The question is, will you allow it to become the defining moment of your life? We live in momentous times, do we not? I mean, if I were to ask you, what are the defining moments of the last two years? Images just start coming to mind, right? Stories, headlines, that's a defining moment. That's a defining moment. That's a defining moment. And it's funny, if you lay those defining moments side by side with Holy Week, I guarantee you will see that a lot of times our leaders did not rise to the occasion, just like in Holy Week, right? But before we point the finger of blame, Perhaps we need to be honest with ourselves and recognize that we don't always hit the defining moments either. I know I don't. I mean, defining moment of my life was when I invited Jesus Christ into my heart as a 13-year-old. I said, Jesus, I don't know what this means, but I give you my life. And I would love to tell you from that point on, I was faultless. It's just not true. It's just not true. I mess up on a daily basis. I fail to be the leader, the pastor, the husband, the father, the friend that I want to be on a daily basis. There's way too much, more than I'd like to admit, of Peter and Caiaphas and Pilate and Judas in me. And I fall victim to the same traps they did We all do. But the good news of Easter is that we don't have to be defined by those failures. We can be redefined by the love and grace 
of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, if we allow Jesus to displace our hurt, our head, we don't have to be defined by our failures. We don't have to be defined by our anxieties or our fears that are so rampant in today's world. We don't have to be defined by division or political difference one from another. We don't have to be defined by those things. We can be defined instead by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And when we allow Jesus to redefine us, then we get to be the light, the bearers of his light in the midst of a dark and broken world. That's who he defines us as. Praise be to God. So how did the rest of the story come out? After I preached this powerful, dynamic Easter message to the Butler basketball team, you know how it happened. You all saw it. Gordon Hayward's shot clinked off the rim, mere inches away from going in. And even though I am a Duke alum, I tell you, I was hoping and praying, just like the rest of Indy, that that shot would go in. I so wanted Butler to win. I wanted it for Brad. I wanted it for those kids. I wanted it for the story that we would just keep talking about forever and ever and ever. And in my tenure, just by the way, my tenure as team chaplain, was over. It was, uh, it was, it was a one and done. Uh, Brad never invited me back. And, and, and he told me later, he kind of joked with me. He said, he said, you know, Dave, you kind of gave them permission to lose. And I said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I didn't. What I did say to him and what I'm glad I said to them is I said, you know what? End of the day, numbers on a scoreboard won't define your lives. You won't be defined by the outcome. You'll be defined instead by your heart and your hustle and your loyalty and love for one another. And in the end, you can be defined, win or lose. You can be defined, same as I am, by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And when we allow that to happen, praise God, every single one of us, we are more than conquerors through his love. Amen. Amen.